beastly to the Germans. Now our victory is ultimately won. Let us treat them very kindly. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show today is Do You Bite Your Thumb at Us, Sir? Our opening song is Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans, a satirical, patriotic song popular in Britain in World War II. It was composed by Noel Coward, and though popular when performed live, radio reaction against its humor led the BBC to ban the song. To let the Germans know that now the war is over, they are not the ones who have to pay. We must be sweet. Today we ask, what is civil discourse? Also, what is civility in the first place? And who gets to define it? I get the feeling that we're cross with them or hate them. Our future policy must be... My guest today is Teresa Bejan, Associate Professor of Political Theory in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. Her new book is Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration. Bejan will be in Bloomington this week, Friday, March 24th, for a roundtable discussion about moderation and civility as part of Indiana University's Tocqueville Lecture Series. Today, politicians and intellectuals warn that we face a crisis of civility and a veritable war of words polluting our public sphere. In liberal democracies committed to tolerating diversity as well as active, often heated disagreement, the loss of this conversational virtue appears critical. But is civility really a virtue, or is it, as critics claim, a covert demand for conformity that silences dissent? For this program, we'll highlight the life and example of 17th century Puritan Roger Williams, who was expelled by the leaders from the colony of Massachusetts because local officials thought that he was spreading new and dangerous ideas to his congregants. He began the settlement of Providence Plantation in 1636 as a refuge offering freedom of conscience and is known as the founder of Rhode Island. He is perhaps best remembered as the originator of the principle of separation of church and state. Williams' mere civility was a radical notion. If you expect to be able to evangelize, and this was his primary concern, then you must allow others the same opportunity, no matter how much you disagree with them, even if you abhor their ways and believe they will surely spend eternity in hellfire. And now, do you bite your thumb at us, sir, on Interchange, on WFHB. Ever get the feeling that we're cross with them or hate them? Our future policy must be to reinstate them. Don't. Where does a book on civility and the times, I guess, where, where, where you're coming to, you know, how did you come to it in the first place? Why did you decide, I should take this on, we should try to figure out, you talk about alienating um, uh, people. Uh, so is, was there a particular point in your life where you thought, you know what, there is no... There is no discourse that I see on television or here on the radio or read in the newspaper or online that seems to me to be doing things the way they might be done so that we can actually come to some sort of uh, civil understanding of each other. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, there are, you know, the book sort of was overdetermined in a way because I was led to the topic of civility by several different routes simultaneously. So, I mean, the first 
thing really was I had thought that I wanted to do um, research on Locke. I knew that I was interested in questions about religious toleration, but that's a very well-hoed row mm-hmm. um, in my field of political theory and the history of political thought. But I, you know, in my second year of grad school, I ended up in a class in the English department on secularism. Um, and that was my first exposure to Roger Williams. I'd never, you know, I'm from North Carolina, so uh, I, I guess I was spared some of the hagiography of the um, of the uh, early settlers of New England mm-hmm. that one would get being raised elsewhere. But I'd never heard of Roger Williams, and um, in that course, the professor assigned Williams' uh, handbook of. American Indian language, um, just called the key into the language of America. And it's just a fascinating text. I mean, it's part language manual, part travel narrative, part anthropology, um, part uh, moralizing poetry. Um, and I just became really interested in, in who this guy was, what this text was, and, you know, decided that I wanted to do something to do with Williams. And at the same time that I was getting interested in Williams, it was also a period in American politics where President Obama was speaking more and more about the importance of civility, calling for civility. And I was noticing in my reading of early modern texts that the word civility was coming up an awful lot um, in in different ways. And so then it was really, it, it was a really fortuitous sort of com- combination of scholarly and research interests, and then a kind of dissatisfaction with the way that people were appealing to civility. And so I was pretty, I mean, I, I should say, I think it comes across in the book, but I'm, I'm pretty much a civility skeptic. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that it gets thrown around in political debate, I often find that, you know, people call for civility. It's a kind of, it's either a sort of empty, pious moralism or, you know, ever more often a sort of uh, club to beat one's opponents with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you call for civility, it's a way of saying, oh, and if you disagree with me, that's very un- uncivil indeed. Um, yeah. So th- it was it was that combination, right? It was sort of trying to see how appeals to civility function um, as a way of suppressing and excluding certain voices from a conversation, mm-hmm. um, and something, and that's something that you can see really clearly in early modern writers on toleration, because there the question really is, you know, what, who can be tolerated, and who must we suppress and exclude, mm-hmm. and the extent to which they use civility um, as the standard by which you make those judgments. I thought this could be a really neat way of, again, yeah, alienating ourselves from some of the key terms of political debate and sort of seeing how they function mm-hmm. in a very different political uh, and historical context. Well, you you center on three figures in particular, Roger Williams, you mentioned uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. These are, uh, one, as you say, is somewhat unknown probably to many of us, unless we live in Rhode Island. And, <laughs> and uh, the others are, are essential to, to many uh, people's understanding of, of political theory and uh, the role of the state in our lives as well. So, so you mentioned uh, Williams already, and he is, in a sense, the hero of your book. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to give away the ending, but... You know. <laughs> Yes, he's, he's the hero of the book. Um, so, uh, so, so, tell us a little bit about Roger Williams. Give us a sense of who who he was uh, before you go into telling us why you why you like what he had to say about um, civility and, and tolerance. Yeah. All right. So, Roger Williams um, was born in 
London. Uh, we're not sure entirely in which year he was born, but sort of early, early 17th century. And um, he's, you know, he, he's one of this generation of young men who go to Cambridge and then experience a kind of religious awakening. Um, and he becomes a Puritan. Um, he he undergoes what he describes as a conversion experience when he's at Cambridge. And this is also a time when um, Archbishop Laud is making things very uncomfortable for Puritans within the Church of England. So he's someone who wanted to go into the church, wanted to be a minister. Um, and he actually took holy orders. But it, you know, instead of actually taking up a parish, he then became a private chaplain to an aristocratic Puritan family, which was a kind of, you know, that was one of the ways in which dissenters within the within the establishment could, you know, could be true to their consciences. But so then it, with the idea that things are getting uncomfortable for Puritans, he um, there also was some suggestion that perhaps he had an, an ill-considered flirtation with the master's daughter. Um, but in any case, he, he joins this exodus of English Puritans um, to the New World, to New England. And that's really where the story starts, right? He's, you know, a bright young thing from Cambridge. His reputation has preceded him. Uh, he arrives in Boston, and fresh off the boat, he gets this amazing, uh, amazing offer of uh, Master Williams. We've heard so much about you. We would love for you to take up the role of teacher in our Boston congregation. So it's a huge honor for a young man and newcomer. And he just unceremoniously uh, rejects the offer mm. by saying basically that, no, 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 you call yourself Puritans here in Massachusetts Bay, but you are un you're not formally separated from the Church of England, which itself is still tainted with the anti-Christian harlotry and corruption of the Catholic Church. Mm. So basically he, he insults them, right. the very first thing, saying you are, you claim to be pure and yet you are polluted, and I will not join your congregation. Um, and so part of what fascinates me so much about Roger Williams is that the extent to which he is known, and certainly he's known in Rhode Island as the founder of Rhode Island, he's known as one of these heroes of conscience. You know, he is, uh, you know, we might think of, uh, you know, Socrates, uh, uh, Socrates and John Stuart Mill as defenders of free speech, and then you have Roger Williams, right? He's a kind of early liberal hero, or at mm. least that's the story we tell. Mm -hmm. But in fact, um, you know, if it, you know, when you really look into his life, you begin to sympathize for his with his persecutors in Massachusetts Bay, because <laughs> he was impossible, absolutely impossible. He um, he was hugely critical of them. He accused them of you know being uh, yeah, anti-Christian corruption of whoredoms, spiritual whoredoms, um, of mixing church and state. Uh, and he also, um, perhaps most controversially, uh, accused them of stealing the American Indians' land mm. um, on the basis of a lie. Um, the idea that somehow, uh, the, that as Christians, they had a superior claim to territory in the New World. Um, and finally, you know, Williams is publishing this stuff for years, and only after years of doing this and sort of promising to stop, that's when he that's when he gets formally exiled. And what what Massachusetts wanted to do was deport him back to England, but he managed to escape in the middle of the night, and so he goes into kind of self-imposed exile in the New England wilderness. He's um, 
taken in by the local tribes, which he, you know, who he's come to know as a trader and as a would-be evangelist among them. So he knows the, um, the local languages. Um, and he's particularly close with the Narragansett, who then give him the land that will become Providence and, and what will eventually become the colony of Rhode Island, Rhode Island and Providence plantations than what we know as, as Rhode Island today. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Teresa Bejan, author of Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration, published by Harvard University Press. Treat them very kindly, as we would have valued friends. We might send them out some bishops. Hmm, a busy fellow. And um, yeah. <laughs> when, again, one of those things that we, when we read history or we hear about history, we have to check our understanding of what life is, you know, our own sense of what life is and what we do and how we do it with the time, you know, try, try to understand mm-hmm. the, the time frame. It's impossible on, on one level, I suppose, to imagine the wilderness that the world is at the time. In mm. in the sense of it, uh, you know, just being a different geography, even uh, a different uh, point of view from your looking out your own eyeballs into the world that is not the world you see now, and trying to understand what it means to meet uh, the Americans, the you know, the natives to the land, and how mm-hmm. how you respond to them. And obviously, you know, Williams, uh, I like very much learning about him in this book and trying to understand his response to the civil practices of uh, people that were not like himself. Right. I mean, and that's, that I think is one of the most striking elements of Williams. I mean, he's a man full of what today we want to call contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what I'm trying to do in the book is very much to sort of to see and to present to my readers that these, that these aren't contradictions, that they hang together, that you can be a barn burning evangelical Christian who, you know, feels this duty to go out and missionize among the Americans. And at the same time say, you know, th- th- there's civility, that civility is the bond of societies. It's not just the bond of Christian societies. And then, you know, you actually have a familiar trope, which is to say that the 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 so-called savages of New England are in fact more civil than the barbaric Christians of old mm-hmm. of old England. Um, and, you know, Williams, Williams milks that, that trope. But um, I mean, one of the other things that really motivated me in the writing of the book was the fact that just as I was discovering Roger Williams and how, how great, frankly, I think he is, um, other, um, other prominent scholars, uh, were doing so too, primarily Martha Nussbaum, who really seizes on Williams cause she, she sees him as a kind of, you know, multiculturalist, mm. um, <laughs> running around, uh, you know, the 17th century, uh, you know, uh, wilderness of new England. And, and in the book, I'm really concerned to combat that. I think, I think it is, uh, it risks, domesticating Williams um, mm. and sort of treating him as though, again, he's a kind of multicultural liberal running around and sort of saying, you know, yes, I respect you and your culture. I mean, he no, he's quite clear <laughs> that he abhors, as he says, right. many of the Americans' customs. And right. nevertheless, nevertheless, right, you tolerate them, you live with them. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's what's so interesting about him. Well, you do make the point throughout uh, and and you argue throughout with, with, I guess, the current crop of political theorists or political commentators, uh, Nussbaum one, I think Waldron is a, Jeremy Waldron's a, a mm. touch point throughout the book as well. But one of the things you point out too is that we make use of historical figures and then lop off those things that don't fit our particular narrative. <laughs> right, right. That's, I mean, yeah, and that as a, as an intellectual historian, that's one of the things that 
I find most frustrating. And I mean, these are, these are wonderful scholars from whom I've learned, you know, a great deal. And, you know, the importance of, of learning, going to history, thinking with the past is precisely the ways in which it kind of should alienate us from our own assumptions, um, the things that we think are right, the things that we think are obvious. And so in to just take the particular case of, of Nussbaum wanting to, to elevate Williams, I mean, I agree with her that there's there's something important there that's worth recovering. But I think in the act of recovery, we have to be very careful not to sort of shove the historical figure into our Procrustean bed of, you know, secular liberalism mm-hmm. and say, hey, look, you know, it's John Rawls. Um, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, that's that I think does a kind of violence, um, to historical figures that, well, you, that, I assume, I assume you, you, you note it down as it's gotta be an intentional choice, right? I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you do any of the scholarship, if you do the reading, you have to make those choices, uh, you know, in, in terms of, like you say, fitting someone into your particular narrative, uh, you, mm-hmm. you no longer become uh, an historian there. You become a kind of uh, ideologue or storyteller at, at least. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not something that I, I'm not claiming to, to escape this, right. <laughs> this problem. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's clear. I'm very upfront in the book to say that, you know, this is a shamelessly presentist, mm-hmm. uh, and yet rigorously contextual, mm-hmm. uh, work of of historically informed political theory and and i'm retrieving or reviving williams just as i am hobbes and locke mm-hmm. in a way that's oriented towards contemporary questions and questions with which i'm wrestling mm-hmm. um so there's always going to be that that moment of you know a historicism of kind of prolapsus where you then sort of say and you know now i'm forcibly going to yank this person from the particularity of their right. context and shove them into my own and you just i think you have to be I think being honest with yourself that that's what you're doing is uh, is is really key. Mm-hmm. But then it's also um, I, I think that you know there's a they're just they're kind of different spirits in which it can sure, be sure. done. And given that my work I think is primarily critical, I think I can sort of leverage the historical dif- distance mm-hmm. between Williams. Um, and us to, to try to open up this terrain, which I think has been closed down, of thinking about civility as something right. more minimal, as something, you know, as something mere. Mm-hmm. Or at least, I mean, that's, that's the move I try to make. Yeah, no, and, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's well, well done, I think, in that sense, right? To, to sort of move against the tide of civility as, we're being, as it's being framed now. And again, what you, you point out, this is not a unique way to frame it. Civility has always been a way in which you could shut down argumentation. Um, and you want to say that here, look, Williams, I'm sure hated so much about so many people <laughs> and so many things. <laughs> he was full of hate. <laughs> but yes, but it, in, in, but essential to that, essential to his own sense of what it meant to to be uh, a Christian, I suppose, uh, to be a person full of a particular kind of principled uh, life was to be able to evangelize. And to be able to do that, you had to have the freedom to do it. And so no one could right. pass laws or or, or point a gun at you or put you uh, uh, on a scaffold or anything like that for for saying the things you wanted to say. So that meant you could insult, but it also meant you had to be insulted, right? You had to be able to manage that there were differences and they could be very, very serious, but you had to allow them if you wanted to be able to speak as well. 
Yeah. And so that's where I think the sort of the maybe the methodological consideration of how we think with historical figures and then the kind of theoretical argument I want to make, you know, sort of giving advice to how to think about civility today really come together. Because I think that there's in contemporary discourses of civility and of tolerance, I think that we often, you know, end up defending or trying to promote a kind of superficial diversity that really is a kind of sameness. So you basically convert difference into similarity and then you say, oh, look how open-minded I am. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) As opposed to recognizing that no, deep difference is genuinely threatening um, on on a pretty primal level. And nevertheless, right, nevertheless, we do the work, we challenge ourselves, we remain committed to tolerating it, to coexisting. And I think that um, what I like about Williams, and I mean, what I think this goes for Hobbes and Locke as well, and why I think they're so worth engaging with, is that there's a kind of psychological realism about the challenges of coexistence, mm-hmm. um, and that, that acknowledges the difficult, the difficult work that goes into it. And, um, I think that, you know, so originally if I, I, when, when I started writing the book, I think, you know, as I sort of indicate it's, um, I, am a civility skeptic. Now I think I started out as a critic of civility saying, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, every, every appeal to civility is simply an attempt to silence or exclude. Um, I finished the book in a sort of more, uh, more sort of moderated uh, position, which is to say, well, yeah, civil discourses of civility are always civilizing discourses. And yet, um, civilizing discourses are a kind of, you know, essential feature of social life. So the question then becomes, you know, you can't just call for civility, you have to, you have to think about what you mean by that, you have to be explicit about what you propose to exclude what you propose to include, and, and then be realistic about the demands that you, you propose to place on people. Hmm. And, you know, on your on yourself. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is about civility, characterized by 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson as strewing flowers on a dead corpse, or as we might say, putting lipstick on a pig. You can't deprive a gangster of his gun. Right. Well, one of the things that uh, um, that ca- came uh, to the fore recently that I would, I guess, I wanted to ask is the the sort of ways in which we allow speech, academic speech in particular, as it tends to be academic institutions that are called into into question when these things happen. But you invite certain mm-hmm. folks to speak at, at your events, and if they're in, a, uh, in an academic institution, you expect them to be included uh, because this is the you know the bastion of how we we believe in in freedom, liberty of thought and expression, uh, the university, uh, I guess we continue to feel as the place where that should be practiced most freely, maybe. Mm. Um, so we've had these uh, contentious issues of late, obviously with the Trump administration, but prior to that with anyone associated with the Breitbart organization and, and um, in particular Milo, I'm forgetting his last, Yen, Yenopolis, something like that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, so there is, there clearly for people is a distinct or a way in which they divide or draw a line that says you can't speak because your speech is so reprehensible that there mm. won't be any discourse. It will just right. be you saying something reprehensible and us saying that's reprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> and what is that for civil speech or what is that for tolerant? What are we tolerating at that point? Yeah, and that I think um, that's a really clear 
example of the kind of phenomenon that I discuss in the book, which is, so one of the, I mean, there's one, there's one respect in which, you know, um, sometimes I think that the uh, obsession of the sort of American intelligentsia with universities can be unhelpful, right? You know, of course, navel gazing elites are going to spend all their time navel gazing Mm -hmm. at the institutions they care most about. But on the other hand, I think that universities are hugely important um, institutions and liberal democracies, uh, particularly in American democracy. But they also are uncomfortable uh, institutions in liberal democracy because universities are emphatically medieval uh, institutions. They are premised on a kind of authority relation, Mm -hmm. the relation of mastery of the teacher over the pupil, right? So, and I think that a lot of the debates you see now about um, civility as the kind of conversational code that's going to govern civil uh, universities as tolerant societies reflect this kind of deep discomfort about the nature of the university and what it's for. Um, And so, for instance, I mean, in the recent um, fracas over Charles Murray speaking at Mm -hmm. Middlebury, the um, the, I mean, the call of the protesters was this is not free speech. There is no respectful debate that can happen when someone is spouting um, basically disrespectful words. So um, that, that, you know, so the idea is that Murray's speech is a form of hate speech. And I would argue that that's to misunderstand the kind of tolerant society that a university must be in a liberal democracy like our own that is characterized by deep disagreement. Um, I think it's a a sort of tragic mistake to think that hatred um, as such has no place in a tolerant society because I think that hatred (laughs) is inevitable in a tolerant society. Um, And... It sort of, you know, there's a kind of hypocrisy about it that says, oh, well, you're filled with hate and that's bad. Mm -hmm. But my hatred of you for your hate is righteous. And so free speech for me, not for thee. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you silence others in the name of a principle that to their eyes, you're obviously not applying. (laughs) Right. In your own case, you're making an exception in your own case. And I think that, you know, it's a sort of fundamental insight of liberal democracy that says that we uphold these principles, not because we want them to apply only in our own case, but we realize that if we want them to apply in our own case, they're only going to be stable and uh, maintained if we extend them to other people as well. Right. It's time for a break. Our music is Like a Song by U2, off of the 1983 album War. My guest is Teresa Bejan, author of the new book out from Harvard University Press, Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration. We're trying to find out how to define our terms and who gets to set those terms when it comes to civil discourse. More with Teresa Bejan on Mere Civility when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Do You Bite Your Thumb at Us, Sir? And we're asking our guest, Teresa Bejan, is it possible to go too far when talking about freedom of speech and expression? She calls upon the example of 17th century Puritan reformer, founder of Rhode Island, and author of the 1644 book, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution, about government force. In it, he argues for a wall of separation between church and state, and for state toleration of various Christian denominations, including Catholicism, and also paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships. The sincerity is a difficult uh, point to try to contend with. It'd, it'd be like, um, again, trying to understand if Yiannopoulos is sincere in any of his proclamations or if he's being mm-hmm. paid to make them. Uh, but I'd argue the same about, uh, say, Bill Crystal um, or any uh, particular pundits who get paid to talk. We, right. we have to question their particular motivations, I guess. And, you know, so when reading about Roger Williams, I didn't doubt his belief as you conveyed mm-hmm. it. I didn't doubt his sincerity. I didn't, I didn't doubt his anger and his hatred. And I didn't doubt that he believed he was doing the right things. Um, so when you argue with, if you're a Quaker and you, and you argue with Roger Williams, you don't doubt he's, you don't think he's trying to manipulate you. <laughs> right? You don't, I'm pretty sure he means it. Yeah. And the Quakers <laughs> mean it as well. Right? So, yeah. so there, there's a part of this discourse now that, and I guess it slid into the Hobbes and the Locke area where I, where I find them more slippery um, mm. And, you know, Williams is absolutely not slippery. He seemed eminently forthright and, mm. uh, and honest in, in his declarations. And uh, I assume he trusted others to be, except for those that I assume he also thought were not being sincere. Uh, this is a part of the book as well, right? How to understand if someone's trying to manage or organize a situation without sincerity, but with, yeah. uh, with other intentions. Well, so this is a really interesting, um, this is a really interesting problem. And it's a point of, I think, it's one of the really important contrasts between William's position and Locke's position, mm-hmm. which in the in the book, I describe William's position as mere civility, and then Locke's position as a kind of civil charity that says that we, you know, that, that demands sincerity um, from the members of a tolerant society, because it says that, you know, a tolerant society must be based on trust, and we can only trust one another if we know that our outsides are an accurate reflection of our insides, basically that you, you know, that, that, that coexistence under conditions of deep difference is going to rely on the fact that we, that we believe others are being sincere when they speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting about Williams is that he's a man of integrity. He's a man of sincerity. He says what he thinks. And this is a, an important difference just in terms of context between Williams and then Hobbes and Locke. I mean, Williams is a practitioner. He is a politician. He is building a tolerant society from the ground up in the new world. Um, it, it, as I put it in the book, you know, with uh, with unpromising materials, <laughs> he is building this. And so he recognizes that I think a certain degree of hypocrisy in civil matters is essential to protecting sincerity in spiritual matters. Hmm. So for Williams, it's essential that you be sincere in religion. But that kind of precious, precious gift or good of spiritual sincerity in a space in which to be sincere 
will often then depend on a kind of tolerance for hypocrisy um, in our day-to-day dealings with those we consider to be, as Williams would put it, idolaters. Mm-hmm. So the question, I, I think, again, that, that sort of opens up as you as you try to consider the extreme that it seems Roger Williams is, is to try to understand um, how how we do live together, right? And part of the question throughout this book for me is to say, okay, I can imagine trying to practice this mm. in some fashion, right, in my life. But when when I move through into Hobbes and Locke, it's it's particularly governmental in its practice, right, or in its theory. Mm. And so we right. shift from a personal, um, deeply felt response to one in which you you see men or hear them, read them, trying to frame how they will organize masses or how they will organize life for other people, how they will create these ideas that will that will sort of. Sh- sh- I guess, shape the way we are together and how it means to be safe and civil in society versus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the personal response of trying to be uh, as honest to a, a dignified living as possible. I just, I just get so angry sometimes reading this, this upper level discourse, this theor- mm. theor- you know, <laughs> theoretical I- ideas from people who wouldn't act that way themselves. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> so, um, so. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> or didn't act I, that I, way I've themselves. I've been preaching the virtues of hypocrisy and, and, yeah. and, yet I, and yet I agree with you. I think this is deeply frustrating. Right. Um, it's something that, I mean, without sort of maybe being too uh, explicit. I think it's something that really frustrates me, in fact, about the way that a lot of political theorists write Mm -hmm. about civility um, and tolerance. I think that often they do this in a way that is, you know, masks, if only thinly, as a profound intolerance Mm -hmm. (laughs) for those who disagree with them. Um, And that sort of, you know, if if going back to the idea that um, dissertations and first books are exercises in autobiography, I think a kind of righteous anger that I have against that um, really is motivating the book. And again, leads to my preference for Williams over Hobbes and Locke. Mm. Now, I mean, I don't, I want to do Hobbes and Locke justice, nevertheless. I mean, I think one of part of what I argue in the book about um, the relationship between civility and tolerance, because, you know, in the 21st century, these are concepts uh, that are often invoked together. You know, you should be civil, you should be tolerant. And the same thing is sort of being worked out in the 17th century, although it's a bit different because toleration is still a kind of, you know, most people think it's not a good thing, whereas Mm. today we're very clear that (laughs) tolerance is a good thing. Um, But I try to unpick um, in the book sort of how exactly they're related. And so the the relationship works like this. Toleration can be both a first person practice Mm -hmm. um, that makes ethical demands on individuals. So it's about how we actually treat others in our day to day lives Mm -hmm. or how we actually coexist with, with someone. But then toleration also refers to a kind of institutional policy question. So how we organize our society, um, and how we govern the expression of difference in that society. And so civility is related to toleration in both respects, right? So civility is the conversational virtue that governs disagreements as we're tolerating people one-on-one every day, you know, this everyday ethic of coexistence. But it also can then refer to the kind of conversational standards we want to impose 
or enforce in our society. Um, so one of the things that I write about in the book are early modern hate speech laws, basically, where in certain tolerant colonies like Pennsylvania and Maryland, you actually get religious insult statutes that seek to ban particular words as being hateful. Um, and so at odds with a tolerant society mm -hmm. and, you know, I sort of note that this sounds awfully familiar, but, um, one of the things that's so striking then, and the, so I, I think that Williams, Hobbes and Locke all are thinking, um, along these ethical and institutional dimensions when they talk about toleration. Um, but you're right that there's this sort of, um, irony in that, uh, Williams, the, the practitioner among my, my figures is the one who seems most invested in the kind of ethical first person. How are you going to comport yourself? How are you going to behave? Right. Um, versus Hobbes and Locke who are both, you know, uh, are philosophers, um, who are writing in a more abstract general way, sort of from the armchair, right. as it were, thinking about what a tolerant society would look like. And so they are focusing more on the institutional level. So what are the, how would a tolerant society be organized? What sort of laws must be imposed? Right. And I think that, I mean, one of the things that attracts me to Williams is this kind of, you know, yeah, frankly, individualist approach to the problem that says that, you know, above all, what we can do is control our own behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and that to be in a tolerant society is to have to do this difficult work of tolerating um, and not just imagine about the laws or the policies we want to impose on other people, right. <laughs> um, which I think can often be the tenor of the discussion. Um, right. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Teresa Bejan, author of Mere Civility, joins us to discuss radical toleration using the example of 17th century Puritan reformer and founder of Rhode Island, Roger Williams. Well, that's, that's ten, that tends to be how I hear it always, I suppose. And, and as you say, when it comes from a particular kind of uh, theoretician versus a practitioner, maybe I, you, you do get your, um, your hackles up to think, you know, wh why are you telling me what to do, right? Mm -hmm. right? This, is, right. this is always the case. So the, um, the point for, uh, for me, again, with, with Williams is this idea, like trying to place this idea in a context where I say, okay, there is hate speech because this is common, um, and we can't mm -hmm. act as if it's not. It's part of the problem is that we've tried to act as if we've solved problems already mm. <laughs> that are clearly not solved and have come to the fore more and more. And so, you know, we, more of this comes out when we when we see these things daily. We read them daily. We read them by the minute sometimes, right? We get Twitter feeds that live stream things, uh, and, and you respond to them in ways that you feel like almost at a sporting event, right? You're, you're on the side of what's happening or you're against what's happening. And right. uh, one thing in particular that, that strikes me in this place, and it's, it was a meme that went around not too long ago when, when Richard Spencer, the prominent white nationalist, got punched uh, right. on Twitter uh, multiple times. You could see it, and I think, I think it happened more than once to him. Um, yeah. But this is the meme that went around, you know, is uh, you, you punch a Nazi. And the question that, that, you know, anyone that I know, any of my own friends would say, well, Nazis are terrible. Yeah. You know, this is a terrible historical, like, if you, like I don't even understand anyone thinking you, you should be one, right? Like, you can't even understand right. that thinking. And yet there, there are many, many, many people who don't understand why you wouldn't want to be one. Right. So, so that's, that's where you sort of fall into this place. Like, what does it mean to be tolerant 
of right. that kind of society or that kind of person. Great. And that, I, th- I think that this is, again, one of these very pressing present problems we're facing that I think actually, if we thought a bit more about the 17th century, we could, we could get some insight, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, so we have a tendency to treat, um, and certainly you see this in kind of complaints about a crisis of civility today. We have a tendency to treat problems like hate speech, um, as problems that have never, you know, that are, that are new to the modern world that are are happening to us for the very first time, because aren't we special? Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, if you think that something's happening for the very first time, as Aristotle would point out, you're (laughs) just, you're wrong. Right. right, right. (laughs) Aristotle can teach us, but, um, but I, so, right. So we think that we've solved problems when actually a tolerant society is basically a recipe for an ongoing problem. It is, it is a problem in itself. Yeah. It's, it's already problematic. Yeah. So, right. So just sort of seeing, and I think even just get, taking that insight on board that wait, toleration isn't a solution to a problem. It leads to this problem of ongoing negative affect of hate, of dislike, of disapproval. Um, that just, that's a, that's a feature, not a bug, mm-hmm. a tolerant society. I mean, so that is just one key point, but then what really disturbs me about, you know, what you say, the kind of, um, the, the mode of social media in which so many of us do most of our engaging mm-hmm. with politics and with our opponents, although, you know, um, the sort of the, the, what counts as engagement is, is itself sure. kind of problem is, is that it, it's it sort of, we, it frees us from the responsibility of, you know, actually sort of thinking ethically about how, how to behave. Mm-hmm. As you say, we get caught up in sort of taking a side, being for it or against it and showing ourselves and declaring ourselves to be for it or against it. Um, that's what matters, that we be seen to be on the right side of an issue and then know who's on the other side, know who our enemies are. And in the Richard Spencer example, I mean, I talk a bit about this in passing in the Washington Post piece. It's just, you know, to, to think that being a Nazi or a white supremacist is a bad thing <laughs> and not knowing how someone could think it's a good thing, you know, that that's important. That's, that's, that's right. But then to sort of assume that when people hold views, you consider to be unconscionable, that the principles or rules no longer apply that I think is really dangerous Mm -hmm. because then what you seem to, you know, what you seem to disapprove of in white supremacy, which, you know, is very disapprovable, um, and, you know, reprehensible is the idea that people aren't equal, the rules don't apply, that they, that, that, you know, that, um, basically, you know, I am exceptional and, uh, other people are held to a different standard. Mm. Um, and that, I mean, so I worry that people who think Nazi punching, is funny mm-hmm. or um, is memeable is that they're committing the same the same mistake mm-hmm. not on the same level of severity but in a way that's quite insidious and then corrodes a sense of the principles on which a liberal democracy are based right. 
Well, and I, I mean, think, it's just, yeah. it, well, just I mean, the point right. about the point about what's so reprehensible about, about people that we that we associate with Nazism is precisely that they were the ones punching people mm-hmm. and worse, right? Mm-hmm. Resorting to violence, right. using swords, not words. And so I really think this kind of righteous sort of celebration of, well, of course, you should punch a Nazi. I mean, I really I, I want to say, you know, doctor, heal thyself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's uh, if see the beam in your own eye. Right. Um, I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Today's show, Do You Bite Your Thumb at Us, Sir?, asks, is there going too far when we're talking about freedom of speech and expression? Well, I think the question for me in in certain situations are related to a sense of... um, this, this belief that that particular uh, understanding of what is right in life can be followed up with uh, violence. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what uh, someone who struggles um, in attempts at peace, th- I guess that is where you, you walk right up against that line and say, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you. And I literally want to say, uh, have, you, have the views you want. Um, but you know, put the gun away, put your fists away, and have all your views. Uh, this is right. this is where we run up against these difficulties, I think. Right, and that's and that's precisely this vexed question of the limit of toleration, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. to um, to say that you're tolerating something is already to say that you disapprove of it. I mean, partly. Sure, sure. of course. <laughs> what's so great about um, what's so great about you know. D- reading these 17th century thinkers is that they remind us that this whole sort of modern discourse of tolerance as a kind of acceptance or affirmation is really, I think it makes a pretty fundamental mistake, which is that no, tolerance is about putting up with that which we dislike or disapprove of. And it's a pretty, I mean, not only not intuitive. I mean, surely if you think something is morally reprehensible, you should think it would be better if it didn't exist. And Mm -hmm. that if you could you would reform it out of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be the sort of intuitive solution, right? That, so is, that is what we're trying to do, though, in a, in a liberal democracy as well, though. I think it's part of the issue that, that, that seems insidious in some ways, right? You try to reform things out of existence or uh, persuade things out of existence or, mm-hmm. in our current popular parlance, nudge things out of existence. Right. Um, you know, these are, while these are not violent ways of being, these are clearly ways in which a particular body, a particular type of person, a particularly placed uh, group of people find ways in which to manipulate populations. Um, mm. You know, so I, it's not that I would say it's it's better to be aggressively violent because you wear that on your sleeve, but there is an <laughs> insidious violence to a lot of what, what happens in, in this kind of uh, civility discourse. I think that that I mean, so I'm I'm very um, leery of sort of, you know, expanding the metaphorical use of the term violence mm-hmm, to include mm-hmm. lots of things. I sure. mean, I, I think it's appropriate in some cases, but in, in, in this case, we always have to be really careful mm-hmm. um, to say that. You know, there's violence and then there's violence. I think sure, that sure, sure. talking about civility, I so mere civility as I as I describe it in the book. I mean, it is most minimally a commitment to using your words, um, not swords, right? Not fists. Um, 
at its most minimal, that's what it is using speech. And that, the, and so it does rest on an, an idea that there is a fundamental difference between words and deeds. And this is something that is very much against the tenor of the times, I think, and, and certainly in, in political theory and philosophy, this idea that we become more and more interested in the way that, you know, speech acts, right? Hate speech is a form of assault. We, I think that, you know, Partly what I want to do is 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 to remind remind people that even though you can use violence metaphorically in this way, there is kind of a di- there's an important difference between calling someone a nasty name and punching them in the face. Mm-hmm. It's not to deny the nastiness of the name. It's not to deny that real harm goes along with that. And nevertheless, there's a difference, right. and a liberal democracy is going to treat these things differently. But um, but you're absolutely right that um the kind of rhetorical force of an appeal to civility as implicitly or explicitly stigmatizing some person or group as beyond the pale, as uncivil. You know, it has this, it makes this move of defining someone out of the community of respectable conversationalists. And you might say that there are people who very, very much should be (laughs) defined. (laughs) out of the respectable respectable community of conversationalists. And that, again, is not something I deny. I think that civility discourses are essential to society as such, that we that we, there will always be a limit. There will always be a pale upon which, you know, beyond which we want to push people. Um, I just think we need to be much more aware, honest, and explicit about the fact that that's what we are doing mm. and not fool ourselves to say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is placing... Um, him or herself beyond the pale by speaking in this uncivil way. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, that is, is the, that's the thrust, I think of mere, of mere civility. Um, and, right. but it's an, un, it's an uncomfortable, <laughs> it's an uncomfortable realization. It's an uncomfortable. Sure. Well, let, let me ask one final thing if, if, if I can. And I think it's got more to do with trying to understand the ability to have the conversations that matter in places that matter with people that matter in terms of our social organization. So, um, you know, it's not hard to have a conversation on uh, Facebook that devolves into rancor. It's not hard to have a conversation on Facebook that has, uh, that only is with like-minded people. So you don't have to devolve into rancor. I think part of the issue that I struggle with is the idea of social organization, social class, social privilege in this in this community in particular, in this in this Western society perhaps, where the people that have the most uh, cachet, the most wealth, the most power have conversations about civility. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I struggle a little bit with trying to understand how we how we do these kinds of things, especially in a culture which I think nearly everyone generally finds all government actions disfavorable in some sense, right? We've we've come uh-huh. into this place where the Congress itself has six percent approval rating or something like that. And uh, so if we don't trust any of the people we we actually vote into office, we don't trust any of the people that are CEOs, we don't trust any of the people that do anything in our lives anymore because they have their own intentions that are usually profit-oriented. How in the world does civility and uh, tolerance and these kinds of conversations affect how we live our life then, or is it just that sort of bottom, you know, sort of bottom level idea of existing in a world in which, you know, I can argue with my neighbor without getting killed. And that's, that's the best I can think right now. Yeah. I mean, right. So on the one hand, uh, civility talk is like 
putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound mm -hmm. or else it's like, a, you know, a kind of leisure activity of those who have, you know, who don't have better things to worry about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, so I think this point about trust, I mean, this is, goes back to the, the disagreement between Williams and Locke mm -hmm. that, that we talked about before. I mean, it's not, I think that you, you, you've, you've put your finger on something that really is important is, and I think is at the heart of what we might call a kind of crisis of civility in American democracy mm -hmm. today is this lack of trust in our political institutions and a lack of trust in each other. And, you know, people will disagree about why that trust is eroded, but I don't think anyone can disagree that it has eroded. And I think that both Locke and Williams think that trust is essential to a tolerant society. What they disagree about is how to build it. And I mean, and there's one way of seeking to build trust, which is to say, okay, I can trust people. I can only trust people with whom I agree on these fundamental questions, right? So I want my tolerant society to be a partnership of, of, of good faith, of good faith partners who sort of know, know that we all affirm the same principles, know that we're all on the same side. But then I think with Williams, he sees that that he understands that desire, but then also sees it as counterproductive. Because if you think that trust is only possible with those with whom you agree, then you've basically just denied the possibility of a tolerant society, which does demand a kind of, I think, leap of faith and in, in, in ourselves and in, in others and what we can expect from them. And the question then facing many Americans, and you know, I'm an American now who lives abroad, um, which, you know, it's, I think, maybe leads me to view, view um, our current crisis in a, in, with a sort of a sense of remove, mm -hmm. uh, but also to feel it very deeply is this worrying that, you know, being, talking to those with whom we disagree is not going to solve the problem, right? I think the problem is deeper. Mm. But it's the kind of thing over which we have control in our everyday lives. And I think that it's essential to, you know, try, you know, this is a thing that we can do that, you know, will might stop things from getting worse. Mm. The problem I see is that people are doubling down right. on the, oh, I can speak only with the like-minded. Mm. Oh, mm -hmm. you know, other people, people who disagree with me on this issue are not just wrong, they're evil, they're interested, they're stupid, they're mm -hmm. malign. Um, right. That, it's the doubling down on that that worries me so much and yeah. that I think we can go very badly wrong here. And I think we're in a kind of critical moment in American democracy. That's our show. Thanks to Teresa Bejan author of Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration, published by Harvard University Press. Bejan will be in Bloomington this week, Friday, March 24th, for a roundtable discussion about moderation and civility as part of Indiana University's Tocqueville Lecture Series. Our music to close the program is Elvis Costello's What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Next time on Interchange, Cuba in Africa. I'm joined by Piero Gleasis, whose book, Conflicting Missions, Havana, Washington, and Africa, 1959 to 1976, bluntly contradicts the congressional testimony of the era 
and the memoirs of Henry Kissinger. The work sheds new light on U.S. foreign policy and CIA covert operations and revolutionizes our view of Cuba's international role, challenges conventional U.S. beliefs about the influence of the Soviet Union in directing Cuba's actions in Africa, and provides for the first time ever a look from the inside at Cuba's foreign policy during the Cold War. Cuba in Africa, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and today's board engineer. Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. What's so funny about a piece of the earth?